good morning, everyone. Good morning. I saw the red mic mocking me from uh, the pew, so I'm going to go with the corded mic this morning. For uh, Advent this morning, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We light this candle as a sign of the coming light of Christ. And read with me, if you would, Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Come, Lord Jesus, and light. Come, Lord Jesus, our light and salvation. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. All right, amen. Go ahead and stand up. Do you feel Christmassy this morning?
can be seated. And kids, this is your moment. Come on up. Come on down.
again, welcome to Hebron Baptist Church, where we like to help those take their next step with Christ. For some of you, it may be a first step, if you've not repented of sin and trusted in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it could be a step in faithfulness and baptism and growing in Christ's likeness, and it could be a step or even a run into the mission field, where you go and you take the gospel to those who need it. If you would, join me in prayer today as we pray, pray for a few things. One, uh, I want to lift up uh, our church's principle of urgent evangelism as we reflect and think on the, the folks that were our one and, um, and where they're at in the state of their spiritual health, that we would quickly take the gospel to them. Uh, I want to lift up uh, Mosaic Multicultural Church and Pastor Alex Brito out there so that uh, they would be encouraged and that they would see gospel growth and in their people and in their community um, and then list up some current affairs so pray with me today lord we thank you we praise you in this season of advent where we're surrounded with so much noise that it's hard for us to think about the the meaning of coming to be with us, God with us. God, I pray that you would make more noise in our life. That you would help us to feel your presence day to day. And today, Lord, I pray, God, that the Christmas story would be for us a beginning of a commission. And that we would earnestly reflect on our principle of urgent evangelism, Lord, that you would bring people to our heart and mind, people around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family members that are lost. Give us the words to say, give us the boldness to take your gospel and proclaim your good news to those that are perishing. Lord, I lift up Alex Brito and his church as they take your gospel to their community that you would encourage them that you would give them perseverance that you would give them strength and wisdom to speak truth to those that are believing lies Lord I want to lift up a scenario that's unfolding in our nation with Michael Cassidy tearing down the satanic altars in the Iowa Capitol and all of the conversation that is coming about Lord I pray that you would be glorified in the conversation that this would not be a scenario where more rules and laws are enacted to push you out of this world but that actual gospel conversations could take place that we would recognize that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against the principalities, the prince of the power of the air. And we've already been given the victory. Lord, I want to lift up those that could not be with us today, that are on the live stream, that are sitting at home sick or caring for those that are sick. Lord, I pray that you would grant healing and peace and comfort. Uh, help them know that they're missed. Help them to know that we desire to have them in our community. Give us more and more desire to bring those folks into our community. Lord, 
I ask your forgiveness where I've neglected to bring folks into our community. Where I've thought about myself or what others may think of me and elevated that above the real need to get your word to the world. And I thank you that in, in, in spite of me and my failures that you have moved, that you continue to march on, that your church is continuing to grow, that your church is continuing to push back the darkness. And Lord, I say with my brother and sisters here, I look forward to the day when you return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Today our scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 through 28. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son of Himself, then the Son Himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Amen. Amen. Go ahead, stand back up. We're going to sing away in the manger. These the words we use might be new to you, but uh, baby Jesus did not stay baby Jesus, right? He grew up and fulfilled his ministry.
we all came for you here for, let's be honest. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Good morning. We, we, we came here for Christmas music, didn't we? Um, there's a reason why this uh, sermon series is, is set up the way that it is. Um, the truth is that the Christmas songs that we sing is a, is a huge part of this season, and it's a huge part of the way we celebrate this season. And as we look at these songs and hymns that are found in Scripture about Christ, um, it kind of reminds us of songs that we sing about Christ now. And so um, this morning, our, our sermon title is Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It comes from Colossians 1. So if you would, turn there in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. If you want to use the Pew Bible in front of you and, and, and follow along with the translation I'll be reading from, that's on page 1043, that's 1043. So if you came here and forgot your Bible or wanting to try out one of these paper things that are in front of you, um, that's where you'll find that. So um, as you're turning there, uh, if you're a parent or an aunt or an uncle, you can certainly appreciate the time period of, of, hey, Dad, look at this. Hey, Dad, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, look at this. Hey, hey, Dad, hey, Dad, look at this. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And, you know, the first few times you hear those, you're like, oh, yeah, what, what, you know, what? And after about, oh, I don't know, 300 of them in an hour, you're like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then after a while, it's like, would you leave me alone? You know, um, we've all felt that I'm just saying it out loud, right? So what is it that... <laughs> causes children to want you to look at whatever it is. And it could be a meteor shower, or it could be um, the bit of mud that they got on their finger, or it could be God knows what. And it, it may not seem consequential to you, but it is the most important thing going on in the whole wide world to them. What makes them like that? And I've been thinking about that this week, and I realized that uh, adults, we don't, we grow out of that way of doing it, but we never quite grow out of that desire when we experience something. We want someone else to share that experience with us, right? Um, and and if, if you don't think that's true, I'd be willing to bet most, if not all of us in this room, at some point or other, have looked over someone else's shoulder to watch a video on a phone. And on occasion, there may have been 8, 10, 12 people gathered around a screen this big to watch a YouTube video, right? You guys have to see this. Or if you've one of those kind of people, one of those people who sees a YouTube video or something and has to send it to everybody you know, then you know what I'm talking about. Because if you've seen it and you've laughed, you've thought, oh, somebody, who, who's, who's going to think this is funny? And there, immediately, and by the way, that person may or may not think that's funny, but um, you want, immediately want to send it to everybody. You want everyone to see this video that you watched, and it probably is funny. Um, and I may or may not be guilty of that on occasion myself. We can't fully enjoy something without bringing someone else in on the enjoyment. C.S. Lewis has a, a, a quote to this end, and I want to read it to you. This is from his Reflections on the Psalms. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. 
It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is, to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with, with, with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch, to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these are the same things. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And so, with the, the title of the song that we sing, for quite frequently we'll sing after we get done hearing from God's word together, we are called to come and to behold the wondrous mystery of Christ. And we find that call in Colossians chapter 1 starting in verse 15. Follow along with me as I read Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, or firstborn over all creation, excuse me. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's commit these things to the Lord in prayer. Lord, may the meditations of our heart be acceptable to you, the words of our mouth as well, Lord, that you might be glorified as we worship through your word, as we behold the mystery of Christ. May we indeed experience Christ and enjoy him as we gather. We pray in Christ's name. Well, so, as we look at this text, I want you to hear these calls. Um, and so the first call that we're going to experience is the call to get the picture, pun intended. Christ is the real God. He says, Paul, the Apostle Paul in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Image here being the Greek word icon, which would be familiar to you. It is the exact likeness, Okay. In, um, in pretty much every idol-worshiping culture, the icon doesn't represent the god. It is the god. That's why they worship the idol. So icon here, when referring to Christ, meaning that, that Jesus isn't a symbol of God. He is God in every sense of the word. He looks just like God, except you can't see God, and you can see Jesus. This is part of the mystery to which we speak. He is the image, the icon of God. God took on flesh. He looked like something. That's new. God hasn't looked like anything before this. But he is looking like a man 
And that man, Jesus, is the exact representation of Christ. Now, some have taken this text, um, and, and they, have, they have believed from it that this idea of Jesus being the firstborn is an indicator that he was created. This is downstream of an old heresy um, started by a man named Arius, or the Arian heresy, and that is, to put it short, there was a time when he was not, <clears throat> referring to Christ, saying that the Son, the part of the Trinity, began at a certain point. And they sometimes take it from this text. Um, Modern-day examples of this are, is Mormonism, is one example of, of the use of this text to show, to indicate that Jesus was in fact born, and that Christ the Son began, and that there was a time when he didn't exist, that he was created, that he was the first of the created beings. And without careful study, um, you might go, well, I can see that, firstborn, that's what it means, born, right? Well, here's, here's the issue. That word that we translate firstborn can mean um, the, like someone born, but that the emphasis is not on the, the beginning of that person. It is not on birth, but on right, birthright, okay? This is a special status um, the firstborn would have. In virtually every culture, the firstborn would be the inheritor. The firstborn would be the authority over all the other children. Um, I, I feel the solidarity with you if you're a younger sibling. Uh, I am one. And, and, and that's what it meant. And, and but one, of the, one of the other ways in which we can be sure of that is because in the very next verse, um, he says he is the firstborn. Oh, sorry, in verse 18, three verses later, he says he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, no one is going to take that verse and say that means that Jesus wasn't and that he was because he was dead. The resurrection is, an, is a connection between Jesus that we know and Jesus before. If it's a new person, that's not a resurrection. That's, it, it defies the very logic behind what resurrection means. So if, if, if firstborn necessarily means that there was a beginning to the son and there was a time when he was not, then resurrection is false. Jesus wasn't resurrected. He was a new person afterward. Although he looked exactly like the person beforehand, has the matching scars to prove it, has all the same abilities and all the same personality. No. Everyone in this room, that, like, we, 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 don't, we don't see that. No one has ever said that in the history of the church. And in the same way, we can't apply this idea that it has to mean that Jesus was born like, like, like the, the son of the Trinity began at some point because we don't use that same hermeneutic in three verses later. So it can mean, we're, we've, we've proven that it can mean something else because we've applied it differently in verse 18. And then we look at the rest of scripture, we see that Jesus is identified with God and God is eternal. Jesus is eternal. When it says he is the image, it means he looks like God in every way. Paul uses some, some different ways in which we can compare Jesus. He, he says, Paul acknowledges the, the reality of invisible things and visible things. He says he's over things visibly, created all things visible and invisible. Okay? Everything is either visible or invisible. 
So that's everything. We'll get to that more in a minute. But if that means that, that Christ, Jesus, created everything, visible and invisible, that can be created. John adds that little, in John chapter 1, adds that little, everything that could be created was created by God. By the word, Christ made flesh. Um, if, if he's saying he has created everything, visible and invisible, he's created everything, everything in heaven and on earth. And there is only one being who has done that, and that is God. Paul acknowledges Christ's preeminence. He is over all things. This is um, a lot of the translations, when you look at uh, the firstborn uh, over all creation, some of the older translations, the King James and others, say of. Firstborn of all creation. This, uh, in some of the more modern translations, we started using the word over to help us make that step. That interpretive step to say that this is a position of authority, not an indicator of the creation of Christ, the creation of the Son. Because the Bible teaches that the Son is eternal. God is eternally Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There was never a time where there wasn't a Son, where there wasn't a Holy Spirit, where there wasn't a Father. God is inherently, in and of himself, three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and he will never stop being three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And Colossians 1 is, is helping us to understand that. In our own times, it kind of help illustrate what this idea of Jesus being an icon, being the image of the invisible God. How do we think about how we authenticate ourselves digitally? How do we, if, if you maybe, I don't know if Android does this, but I know the iPhone, a lot of the things, you can save your password, and it has to look at your face, and then when your face looks at it, it's like, okay, you're really you. I'm going to give you your password now. And they know it doesn't always work, and they really struggle during COVID. When you get the mask on, it's like really hard to tell if you're you. We use facial recognition to indicate that you are, in fact, who you are. Think about every spy movie you've ever seen. If you've ever seen a spy movie, you know, the, 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 um, or like a heist movie, the, the bad guys are always worried about the facial recognition. They're not going to be able to get through security unless they can somehow fake it, and that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, so that's, uh, facial recognition is one way we authenticate you are who you are. I think about like, you know, like retinal scans and some of these spy movies, uh, but even, you know, in our everyday uh, vindication or identification, you think about um, like, like, like figuring out who committed a crime. We use DNA evidence. DNA is an indicator of the unique person, right? So we can, we can authenticate a person's identity through their DNA. We can, I, 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 we can um, identify them through their fingerprints. That was sort of an old way we do things. Um, we can tell who you are by your fingerprint. Dental records is another way. It's kind of a weird way, like when you find... Uh, when, 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 when somebody's been killed and they don't know who the person is, they'll, they'll use dental records to identify. We have all these different ways of identifying, and when we use these methods, when we're done using the method, we are absolutely sure this is the person. Your phone, when it unlocks to your face, is absolutely sure you are you and not someone else. In the same way, Christ himself is the authentication that he is God. He passes the facial recognition test. He passes the fingerprint test. He passes the DNA test. Jesus is God. He doesn't just look like God. He doesn't just sound like God. What do we say? If it looks like a duck and it talks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's not a chicken. Jesus 
is God. For as far as reality is concerned, this is God. He has passed all the tests. If you are waiting, if you are, if you are this morning have not quite bought into this whole Christ thing, and you're waiting to see proof, that's what this passage is for. It's speaking to you. Jesus is the authentication of the existence of God. In himself, he proves to us that God exists. He proves to us that God loves. He is just and good and right because we see everything we need to see about God in Christ. So wait no longer. Christ has proven himself in his life and his death and his resurrection. John 14, 9 and 10, or verse, sorry, excuse me, verse 9, Jesus is talking to Philip. He says, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me, what? Has seen the Father. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus himself, in his own words, identifies the fact that if you've seen him, you've seen God, because Jesus is God. He is the image of God, and we know him as God. Ephesians 5 uses this same idea to talk about husbands and wives. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself to her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. Husbands, we are meant to be the image of the gospel to the world. We are meant to love our wives like Christ loves the church in front of the world. We reflect God in an imperfect way, no doubt. We aren't, our marriages aren't the image of God. But we can picture Christ before the world by the way we treat our wives. So we've seen, we need to get the picture, Christ is the real God. And if Christ is the real God, then he is the Lord of everyone. And that's our second call. Check out all the alls. Christ is the universal God. Check out all the alls. We look back through the text again. The firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him. Um, he's before all things. By him all things hold together. All his fullness dwells in Christ. Reconcile everything to himself. All, every, all, 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 every, all, all, all. I think Paul is trying to make a point by all of these alls. As we've seen, I kind of alluded to a minute ago, he's, he created all things visible and invisible, okay? Like I said, there's nothing that's not one of those two things, right? We have other phrases that we use like this. We could say, uh, to make, we might say sarcastically to our children uh, to a certain amount of times before they figure out what we're saying, you only have to take the trash out on days that end in Y, right? Um, we, we have phrases like boys and girls, men and women, like um, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, like that is a phrase that is meant to indicate everyone, right? All people. Um, I think about um, I think about the green eggs and ham, right? Uh, Dr. Seuss. On a boat, not on a boat. Like in all these different places. Like no, I don't. Dude does not want his green eggs and ham ever at all in any circumstances, right? 
Um, Deuteronomy 6 uses this exact same way of, of talking. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, Repeat them, that is the law, to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Is there a time you don't teach them to your kids? No. You're either, you are always either sitting, standing, or lying. You're never doing something else. Those are what you're doing at all times. You're always either inside or out. I guess for a split second you're in the doorway, but you're still inside. I mean, like, there's no situation where you're not described as inside or outside, right? This is meant to say everyone, all things. These are expressions that indicate all without exception. Christ the Son is the creator of all things, and all things submit to him. There, are, there will be no other God that we'll suddenly discover exists that has authority over the Lord God. In fact, all gods that we know of, that we talk about, that are worshipped in the world and have ever been worshipped in the world, existed after God. We made them up after God existed. They aren't there at the beginning. We don't have to worry about some spiritual being that trumps out the Lord God. We don't have to worry about some other Christ that we need to have noticed because Christ the Son in the New Testament is God and he's the only one. It's never happened before. It will, it will, he will return as he was so there will be no other incarnation of God than Jesus Christ. We don't wait for any other one. We don't look for any other God. This is the one at the top. When I was a kid, and my dad would help me to make something out of wood. You know, you've heard the phrase, measure twice, cut once, right? Have, have you heard that before? Okay, if you haven't, measure twice, cut once. Meaning, <laughs> you want to make sure the measurements are right before you cut, because it won't get any longer if you cut it even more, right? Have you ever had the experience of trying to cut the wood more and more, and it just keeps getting short and shorter and shorter instead of longer? Um, yeah, so, but one of the ways he taught me, because a lot of times you, you, you'll pull your measuring tape out, and you'll mark the line, and you let the measuring tape go, and you realize, wait, where on this line is the point at which I was supposed to measure? Has anybody ever had that experience? Where you have like a, like a if you're like a messy handwriter like me, you have like a diagonal line, and you're like, it's somewhere in this space is that line, right? So what my dad taught me to do in that situation, and maybe you've had this experience too, what do you do? You draw another line that intersects with the first one. You make a little V. And so the point you're measuring to is that V. That's how you get precise measurements, okay? That's what God is doing here. That's what Paul is saying here. He's pointing to Jesus' uniqueness. He's being precise at who we're talking about. Christ, like if we think about this from one perspective, we might be asking the question, who is Jesus? And so as we go, we, we, know he, we know who he is, we know who he isn't. We know who he is, we know who he isn't. And he's narrowing it down more and more and more until the point where you say, well, if, he's, if he created all things, he has authority over all things, he can be nothing but God. He holds all authority and all other authorities are under his. That means government, structures are under his authority. Presidents are appointed by God. Kings, by God. 
Now, this has caused a lot of difficulty over the years because at some, there comes a point where you need to, as Americans, this is like built into our DNA. There comes a point where you have to stand up and say this far, no further. That we, we exist as a country because we ask that question. And so that's a difficult sort of ethic to go, to go forward. When is that point where, you're, where, you, where you don't obey your government and you follow the Lord instead? I, and, and that's different for every case. That's a sensitive subject I understand. But we need to understand as we work that all authorities are put in place by God. And we see Christ's example in Luke 22 of, of, of submitting to authority. Uh, uh, Jesus in Luke 22, for, verse 42 says, Father, if you were willing, this is he's in the garden, but right before he's about to be crucified, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be alone. So he is submitting himself to the Father, showing that even he submits to authority. Uh, Romans 13, verse 1 and 2, let everyone submit to the governing authority, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. We're meant to understand all authority in light of the authority of Christ. That's one thing we get from Colossians 1 as well. Ephesians 5, we looked at a minute ago, to, refers to, to wives submitting to their husbands as to, the Lord, as to the Lord. That's an authority that exists in the household that doesn't begin in the household. It's underneath the authority of Christ. So wives submit to husbands as husbands submit to Christ. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, that would be unprofitable for you. Ephesians 5, 20 and 21, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Submission is a part of the human experience because we all understand ourselves to be underneath Christ, who is God. When he says reconciling all things to himself, reconciliation in some sense means consolidating authorities. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every, a, a representation from every tribe, tongue, and nation will surround the throne of Christ in eternity, worshiping Christ, not through any mediating governmental authorities, but directly. So the work that God is doing then is simplifying authority. There will be a day where all of us will be directly under Christ. We won't recognize some other kind of sovereign nation. We won't recognize one another as, we may be different from one another. That certainly indicates that with this idea of every tribe, tongue, and nation. John the, uh, knew by looking at them that they were from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But they're all giving their allegiance and worship to one, the one who sits on the great white throne. And so when it says Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, that means there is a day coming when all of us will be under him as we ought to be. So Christ is, the, is not only the, the true God because he is our creator, but because he is our savior. So we've seen, we check out all the alls, that Christ is the universal God. We get the picture, Christ is the real God. Next, we watch him stick the landing. This is, this is kind of like that, that phenomenon that we want to gather around and see something amazing on a YouTube video 
and we are so interested in the video that we'll watch it on a tiny little screen with 18 of our best friends on top of one another. Why? Because we want to watch this amazing thing happen. And that's what we're doing when we're looking at Colossians 1. We are seeing this uh, incredible mystery right before our eyes. How did Christ become the head of the body, the church? In verse, um, in verse 18, he's also the head of the body, the church. How did he become that? Well, first, Jesus did something concrete, which is why the language of the body, he's the head of the body, he did something that exists in the world. He did something we can see, we can feel, we can touch, we can know about, we can talk about, we can read about. He did something concrete. Jesus created an institution that actually exists in the visible corporeal realm. The church functions much like Jesus did in the fact that we are evidence of God in the world. We are the image of God in the world. We're referred to as Jesus' body, as, as the body of Christ. We're meant to reflect God into the world. So Jesus did something concrete by creating the church by being the first member of it. Look at that. Verse 15. He's also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That is the entrance into the church. Jesus is the first member because he's the first resurrected one. That's what the church is. It is a gathering of people who've been raised from the dead. And if that seems strange, let's look at paragraph 9 of our church covenant. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, remembering that as we have been buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, we have a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. Our baptism as believers into a church is an indicator that we are part of the church because we have been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking. Christ experienced that before us. He was raised from the dead so that he would be the first member, the charter member of the church. So he is the head because he was the first member. He's the charter member. He is the head of the church by virtue of creating it, right? When you make something, it becomes yours. Now, this gets really, really tricky if you have kids with Legos at home. Because I don't know if anybody else in the family with Legos, but like you have a sort of a collective pot, and it's like as soon as one of the kids makes one, oh, that's mine now. Well, but the constituent parts are everybody's, right? But are they not indicating something built into us that we ultimately know? That being the creator of something is to be the owner of it? I mean, it's, it's a little messed up because they, it's not a one-to-one -one metaphor. They didn't create it ex nihilo. They made it out of Legos, which belonged to someone else, namely me. Um, but they, they have an understanding that when you're the creator, you're the owner. You're the, the authority over that thing. You're the, you, you, it belongs to you. And the church belongs to Christ because he made it. Because he brought us together. Because he raised us from the dead. And thirdly, he is the head of the church in that he is the boss of it. He has first place so that he might uh, so uh, verse 18, so the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. This is how we can go back and interpret firstborn. We talked about that at the beginning. 
The point of Jesus as being firstborn is that he gets first place. He has authority. He is the inheritor. He is in charge. He's the oldest. He's the actual Savior. His work on the Christ actually accomplished salvation, actually created the church. Um, we can know, we can ultimately know that when we do evangelism, that our evangelism is real. Because Jesus actually reconciled all things. What he did was to create an actual body of people he actually brought about salvation for us, for those who turn from their sins and trust in him. The, the cross of Christ pays the penalty of sin that we deserve, that we ought to pay ourselves, but we can't pay without dying and staying dead. So Jesus paid the penalty for us because he was the only one who could, because he's the only one who could raise himself from the dead afterwards. So because he actually did that, when we go out into the world to share the gospel, we don't have to worry about putting on airs or making it more attractive. We don't have to worry about saying something about Christ that isn't true, as long as we're sticking to what the Bible says. We don't have to worry about prettying it up. We don't have to worry that somebody's going to catch us in a lie. Because it actually happened. It's not just something we believe is helpful. You, you can sort of take it on like, like we're selling Tupperware or something. We actually believe that Jesus died to reconcile all things to himself. Not just me, not just you, not just our tribe, but all things. Verse Matthew 6, uh, so, and, and it's, it's we, we know not only in our evangelism don't need to be afraid about saying the wrong thing or about Jesus not being the Savior, but we go with his authority. Matthew 28, 18, the beginning of the Great Commission, we often skip over. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore. I love the evangelist, Ying Kai. He's a Chinese evangelist. He says, I don't ask for permission to share the gospel. Jesus already gave it. I just share it. What if we shared the gospel like that? What if we didn't say, oh, please, do you, would you mind if I just said a little thing about Jesus? No, we don't need to do that. Now, we don't need to be rude either, but we can say, Jesus died for you. And not just like, maybe if you join this club, you can sort of think that, represent like a representation symbolically to have a better life. No, it actually happened, and you can actually be forgiven, and you can actually have eternal life with Christ. If those things are true, we go with authority. Matthew 16, 21, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Jesus predicts this death the cross wasn't an accident. Didn't, Jesus didn't get caught and arrested. Jesus gave himself up. He did it on purpose, and he stuck the landing. When he rose from the grave, he finished the work. It's finished. Hallelujah. Isn't that good news? Jesus is the older brother we would have picked. Some of us 
if you have an older brother, you may not have always thought, you know, I'm so glad he's my older brother, especially when you're little. You know, you know how it is when you're siblings. So your older brother may have been a drag when you were a kid. He may be a drag now. I don't know what's going on in your life. Jesus is not that older brother. Jesus is the older brother you wish you had. And you do have if you were in Christ. He will always care for you. Maybe you had an older brother who didn't watch out for you, who left you to the wolves. Jesus is not that older brother. Maybe you have an older brother who didn't care about you. Maybe when you got to be an adult, you parted ways and never spoke again. Jesus is not that older brother. He loves you. He's earned the title. Your older brother just got born at the right time. What else did he do to get that position? But Jesus earned it by being the firstborn among the dead. Jesus is the older brother we would choose. If Jesus is raised, then your sin can be forgiven, no matter how dark and depraved it may be. That thing that you just thought of, that no one else knows, Jesus died for that thing too. And his resurrection proves you can be forgiven. It proves that you are loved. It proves that God has the power to fix what's wrong with you and what's wrong with me. Because of the salvation Christ has wrought for us, he's become our all in all. And so the last call for us is, what's the point? And the answer is Christ is the point. All things, and this is huge, don't miss this, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything belongs to him all the things we do in the world are for him. And he says all things are reconciled through him. Now, let's think about that for a second. All things are reconciled. Let's think about the implications of that. Let's, let's think about this in another way. We have a, way, a phrase we use in our, in our uh, world to describe something that means you need to stop whatever you're doing and attend to this one thing. And it is the phrase... A manner of national security. If somebody says that, you need to stop what you're doing. Whatever you think is the right thing, you forget about it, and you do whatever that person, with an, hopefully the person has the authority to say that, but you do what that person says. Because this is more important than you, it's more important than your family, it's more important than your town, your city, your state. It's a matter of in our case, hundreds of millions of people's lives are at stake. So when you use the phrase, it's a matter of national security, you're showing how important it is because it concerns everyone. When Paul says that all things have been reconciled through him, he's also indicating all things needed reconciliation through him. The world is messed up. I don't have to prove that to you. You know it already. That's the power of the three circles model we use for evangelism. Because when we talk to people and we, and we talk about the brokenness in the world, I've yet to talk to a person who, when I say the world is broken, they don't go, amen. They may not believe in God at all, but they do know the world's broken. We know that without being reading this, but we, when we see this and we see that Jesus has reconciled all things 
that means this is a matter for all of our attention all of our attention in this room and all the attention of everyone you will ever meet the work of Christ is of cosmic importance all of human history is leading to a throne room in the center of which sits King Jesus it's all about him and there is nothing else for life or history to be about nothing else matters we use that phrase so flippantly <laughs> with songs about it but this is the one thing for that which is true Christ is the most important thing what he's doing in the world is the most important thing going on and everything else in our lives needs to be put under that Romans 8 8, 8 19 says for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed the rest of the world Romans tells us has already got that figured out John 8, 58 to 50, John 8, 58 says, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. He's saying that he is God, and he's also saying that everything is pointing to him. I remember having a conversation several years ago. Somebody moved to the area to work for Answers in Genesis, and I'm not picking on Answers in Genesis, except this, this sentence was funny. Uh, the person made some comment about working for God. They were like, you know, this is what happens when you work for God. And I was like struck by that. Um, and I get it. I get why they said it. You know, they work for ministry. You know, in a sense, they, they work for God. But don't we all work for God? Isn't that what Paul is saying? That all things are for him? Your work is unto the Lord. So, is it? Are you working in your workplace, wherever it is you work, whatever it is you do, are you working as unto the Lord? Are you giving those things over to Him? Are you working for His pleasure or your own? Are you working for the cause of the kingdom or some other less important cause? Your work isn't for making widgets or wealth. It's for the white throne. Everything we do is for Christ. How is your family oriented toward Christ? As the, as the end of everything, are you raising your children in such a way that they're prepared for the kingdom of God more so than the kingdom of this world? Are the activities that dominate your schedule as a family pointing toward Christ as the end for everything? Or are they pointing toward yourself? Or your ambitions? Or your ambitions for your children? The opportunities you feel like your children should have? We need to be raising our children in Christ's kingdom and for his purposes, and not to be really, really athletic, talented college graduates. That's not the point of, of parenting. We certainly want those things for our kids. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the point. The point is to raise our children for God's purposes, to do with whatever he wants to do, so that it's not a surprise when they turn 18, 19, 20, and they come home from college and say, actually, I'm going to take a semester off, and I'm going to go be a missionary for a semester. Don't cringe when that happens. Rejoice. That's what you raised them for. What if that happened more often? What if that happened more often? It was more normal for our children to come home and say, I'm going to take a semester off, not to get away from school, but to do something for the Lord with my time. We, can we be ready for that? and be excited when it happens. Certainly guide them. I mean, college kids can be crazy. I, I get it. I was one not that long ago. 
But we need to be ready for them to be doing the things of the Lord because we raise them to do that. And we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. Are we pointing everyone towards Christ because he's the point? Is Christ the point of your life? Jesus died to save you from the separation you experienced from him because of your sin. It isn't arrogance of him to save you for himself. It is the ultimate kindness because there is no greater one to live for than Christ. And no greater life lived than one lived for him. Make him the point of your life today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray indeed that a vision of Christ would be before us in this season more than sugar plums, more than gifts. I pray that the greatest gift of all Christ would be on our minds, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, over all creation. And Lord, I pray that in this season and from now on, without exception, that we would make Christ the point of all that we do so that you be glorified and that we would enjoy you forever. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.
announcements here, and, and I'm probably going to need a cartographer here if anybody's good at mapping. I've got a few directions I want to send folks to, okay? N number one, if you go out these doors and to the right, you'll notice right on the right this box with a bunch of holes and letters on it. Uh, for those that do not know this tradition, as is our tradition here and in many other churches, we've set up a Christmas card exchange box out there. So if you've got Christmas cards for folks in this church, we will not deliver outside of the church, but you put the cards in the slots out there, and what has been the tradition is what you save in terms of stamps, you would donate to Lottie Moon. So that money can go towards foreign missions, like the video that we just saw. One of the traditions we've got in our household is as we've received cards in that box, we'll take them home, hang them up on our door, and then after Christmas, we'll let the kids grab one at a time, and they always fight over which one they want, but they'll grab one at a time, we'll pull them together, and we'll pray for the families who gave us Christmas cards. So if you want to be prayed for by our family, that's one thing you can do is donate to Lottie Moon, put the card in there. I will warn you, we will pray for you, but I cannot guarantee the quality of the prayers. The, those that have seen our family over the last few years knew that we've lost several family members, so uh, there has been times where we would gather around a card to pray for a family, and one of my children would just say, Dear Lord, please help that they don't die. So uh, if you need that kind of prayer, right there, card in the slot. Um, but that, that's the Lottie Moon. So that, that's out the doors to the right. If you're a visitor with us, out the doors to the left, we've got our next steps desk. That next step desk is there for you to help you take your next step with Christ. If you want more information about our church, how to get plugged into a life group, how to get plugged into a, uh, a, a community somewhere, a D group, uh, how, if you want to serve, we've got some ways for you to do that there. We would love to connect with you. Um, and then for members, for members, you're going to exit the doors, go, go to the restroom, go pick up your children, and then you're going to come back. And we've got a members meeting right after service where we're going to go through the budget for next year. So uh, love to hear your questions and, and comments on that, give uh, feedback. Uh, but those are for the members. So three directions, out to the right, out to the left, and then out and then come back. Hopefully you don't get mixed up. And if you get lost somewhere out there, grab another member. They'll point you back to the right way. Um, the, uh, the, the last thing that I want to emphasize, and, and this is about just the proclamation of the gospel. We're, we're in a time where many of you have neighbors, family members, friends that you want to share the gospel with. And you may not know how. You may not know you know, what, what's going to be the, the most winsome way or the most encouraging way or how do we reach them? We've got a perfect opportunity this year. Okay, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. Statistically speaking, we're going to see a lot more visitors into church. People are more willing to come to church on Christmas than, uh, aside from Easter, any other day throughout the year. So there's a level of willingness there. Okay, we know at this church when they come, they will hear the gospel. So if there are people around you that you want them to hear the gospel, you want to make sure they hear the gospel, invite them to church. Invite them to church. So they can come on the Christmas Eve service. We've got a, an orchestra that we'll be playing. We're already inviting in members of the community to be part of that. Uh, so get the word out. We want to make sure that the nation's here. And God is bringing the nations to our area. So that is the announcements for today. Uh, for members with us, be sure to stick around for... Uh, the um, uh, the opportunity to participate in the life of the church. Uh, we're going to now 
uh, worship the Lord with uh, giving him offering. And those wondering where Sean is, thank him today. Um, he humbled himself to the point of becoming obedient in the nursery. So Sean is uh, helping out in the nursery, and I'm grateful for his humility and his, his leadership there. Um, so he, he asked me to fill in for him. But uh, give, give him a good thanks and a hug today as you see him. Oh, my God. 